0: on this week's devils in the details a comprehensive season review of the 2022-2023 campaign this is a big one so we welcome the wonderful carl anka to help us talk through the tactical trends of the season award our player of the season disappointments surprises our favorite moments manager eric ten hogg's performance and how this season played out in terms of implementing his ideas on the pitch Case, are you excited as I am for this one?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think so. It's been a while since we've had uh, our special guest on, so uh, it's exciting. We're going to get get to uh, tie off some loose ends that I think we had uh, the last time we spoke, so looking forward to it.
0: And if you know us, you, know, you definitely know Carl Anka, so we really appreciate you joining us again, Carl. How's the week been treating you so far?
2: Good. It's my first week back. I was in holiday for a little bit, uh, and... Because it's Manchester United, that means something's happened every single day since I've got back. So I've had that sort of relearning how to do my job as my job is drastically changing as Manchester United are. I've been trying to separate fact from fiction and wheat from chaff. What do you What do you prefer, club.
0: the season or the transfer window?
2: <laughs> I always prefer the season. Um, I think my, my, my greatest strength in this job is explaining how football games work um, rather than constantly be on the phone talking to agents and people for football clubs who don't necessarily want to talk to you right now uh, so anyone you know, i've got nothing but respect for people like david unstein like fabrizio and you know, like my co-workers at the athletic who are just amazing at finding out transfer information because i just i'm not as good on the phone as them
0: makes you a great fit to come join us today um <laughs> and for the next topic which is going to be a journey through the season. We're going to look through some of the parts of the season. I think it's been a bit fragmented with the world cup. It's also been very long. And so we're going to take it all the way back to the opening of the season, Brighton and Brentford. Um, these matches are older than Casemiro and Anthony's 10 years at United. Um, and United lost both of them and, and not in good fashion either. They, they were soundly beaten in both of these games. Um, and there were dire issues to be addressed in the market case. I'll come to you first. Um, it seemed like the approach United took in these two games was very different to what we would see for the rest of the season. Um, do you want to quickly address why that is? Yeah. I
1: mean, I think this is a, a fleshing out period, right? Um, no one knew what to expect from this. And I think the, you saw in preseason, some of the, 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 the concepts that were maybe supposed to play out in this match play out. Um, but the premier league is, is entirely different from preseason. Um, and we saw that, right? We just the intensity is so much higher uh, in these matches, and whatever time that there was spent on the training ground did not hold up to scrutiny. Uh, the scrutiny that was these two these two matches, um, yeah, that's what I have to say about it. Let's break it down: the Brighton
2: game, season opener, Christian Eriksen's being used as a false nine, um, and the Brentford game has a. Considerable minutes being given to Cristiano Ronaldo, and the centre-back partnership is Lissandro Martinez, left centre-back, and Harry Maguire. You know, you're seeing fixtures that are not fixtures of the better Manchester United performances later on in that season. Uh, one thing that stuck out in those two matches. So I was pre- I, I covered the Brighton game via television. And I was present for the Brentford game, um, and one thing that stuck out was it, it seemed to be. Or oh, Ten Hag seemed a little bit surprised by the um, match in-game adjustments of the other managers, and, and you, know, you can make a area de tax statement here. But you know, Ten Hag was the smartest manager in the Dutch league at by the time he left. You know, Roger Schmidt pushed them really, really h- hard, and your man who's been linked to Tottenham that said no on slot. Also pushed him very, very closely. But for a good chunk of time when he was in the Dutch League, he was the cleverest manager. Uh, he had the biggest budget, he was the cleverest manager, and lo and behold, Ajax won things. Uh, whereas in the Premier League, okay, Manchester United still financial heavyweight, but there were some really big holes in that squad on opening day. You know, Anthony Martial misses the opening game the season because he has a hamstring injury. Uh, so Christian Eriksen has to go play. False nine, he's playing. You know, Scott McTominay is starting, who will not be his starting central midfielder for many more games throughout the season so he's trying to do this at a time where part through the Brighton game you know part of just goes okay box midfield we're just gonna if you're gonna try an empty midfielder Scott McTominay to, to help Christian Eriksen I'll play a box midfield and I'll work around you and the Brentford game has a really really good collective team press that just profited and they beat they beat up Manchester United and I think that really rattled him uh, to the point where you know, Before Ten Hag became the United manager, there was conversation that apparently he was going to be the Spurs manager and the Spurs team uh, had concerns over his command of English. Ne- we can never be quite sure about that, but his English was good You know, on, on, on opening day or before the first game. Again, Brighton, I know I oh, English, his English had improved since his initial unveiling before the Crystal Palace game from this season before. And then after the Brentford game, I went, your English has got considerably worse in the last ninety minutes since losing 4 0. Which I mean, yeah, you know, if I lose 4 0 and someone asks me questions in my second language, I'm gonna start stumbling over my words too.
1: Yeah, I think what I would add to that, I think you pointed out a few a few things there. I I was pretty vague about what didn't work tactically. I think specifically what didn't work tactically is I think I think he expected building out was going to be easier Mm -hmm. than it was. Um, And I I think Brighton-Brentford, obviously two very good pressing sides, but, you know, they had high ball wins that led to goals, and that's the obvious part of it. But I also think a really disturbing part of these first two matches was how blunt we were going forward when we did manage to get into the final third. And I think that was a product of that inability to build up from the back and... Sort of the the expectation that we were going to be able to, and as a result, be able to enter the final third at speed um, against disorganized defenses, and we we never did. We really, I, I I can hardly recall a moment in those first two matches where we were moving at speed um, with those direct attacks that I think we, we wound up associating with the team towards the end of this of this season.
2: So, I think it's a while for Manchester United fans to understand. What sort of manager Eric Ten Hag was? Uh, part of that is my fault because most of my explanations are behind a paywall, and perhaps I shouldn't—I should have tweeted out a little bit more about how, why he's not a prototypical Ajax manager. But there was this huge conception, even way past United winning the League Cup final, that he was a you know possession-based, tippy-tappy uh, Pep Guardiola disciple manager when that's not the case and the reason why he's been successful in a way that other former ix managers who have left ix haven't is because he is i don't like using the word pragmatic but he is adaptable and able to use workarounds in a way that someone like say frank babo or peter bosch hasn't been able to do
1: yeah i i would say his his tactical development is is far more german yes. in yes. nature than than the average say it with less <laughs> pain on your face yeah <laughs> uh then well then the average possession based manager that we've seen be very successful in european football the last decade um i think people expected lvg and they got more um Maybe more Klopp? There are some Klopp things. I shy away from that comparison. Yeah, there are some Klopp I, things in there.
2: there was a, there's a real focus on counter-pressing on this Manchester United team that if you, don't, if you aren't necessarily au fait with what counter-pressing is, you might not see it. Uh, and also the, the good-slash-annoying-slash-difficult thing about Ten Hag's United you know, is the counter-pressing is very much dependent on which players are fit and able to play. Not necessarily which play, not necessarily based on the system. That will improve in time. But like a lot of the things that became, oh, that's Ten Hag football, or that's Ten Hag's United, only really became apparent when Casemiro was playing, or when Anthony was working in a front three, or when you know those better moments where Anthony Marshall looked capable of running more than thirty percent, if that makes sense. Um, so it's there. It, it took a while to get in and then when it got in it all made sense in that like January to February month and then it went away quite quickly in April because you know United had to play nine games in one month
1: I think and Aaron I know you're trying to get us to transition forward here but I think another interesting thing and I think we can use this as a transition piece to the next set of games is do we think the uptick in performances that came afterwards Liverpool um, Southampton, Leicester, Arsenal. Are those the four after that? Yeah, I think? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do we think that was more the introduction of Anthony Casemiro? I don't think he even played all of those matches. Um, or so do we Anthony, think it was more the tactical adjustment?
0: So, Anthony did not play neither, Anthony yeah, he debuted against nor, Arsenal. Yeah, and Casemiro didn't start any of these matches, actually. Yeah. Um, And going back, I mean, these were the matches that preceded some of those weird Europa League games. Um, There were were very few Premier League games in September because of the Queen's passing. Um, And then, you know, the Man City loss, which is when we had Carl on the first time. And the subject of our discussion was, you know, to what extent is this compromise that United are making to get results tactically? Because there were clear compromises made from the start of that Liverpool game. Um, To what extent are those worth it? Um, in order to just get results down, um, implement basically create a baseline, a starting point for Ten Hag, um, and I think what Carl is saying is right. Right, like between that Liverpool match where United won, and then the League Cup final, you saw a progression of you know elements of Ten Hag's style within what I would say is like a restricted model of what it looked like in his final year at Ajax. Um. And so I guess, I guess at the time we were discussing the extent to which it was worth it. And now we're looking back from the lens of, you know, in these games, where were United struggling in, I I guess, why why were United better at what they were doing in February than they were in September when they beat Liverpool and Southampton and Leicester and Arsenal? Um, yeah, I, I mean, that's,
2: you, know, you, you just have to learn the system and... That Liverpool game was really, really big. And I think everyone... I described it as the big sliding doors moment of that season. And I think if, if United lost that game against Liverpool, Ten Hag might not have made the season. Based on, not on journalists, whatever, but on just sheer amount of yelling from Manchester United fans. I'm sure Manchester United officials will tell you that Ten Hag was never at risk of losing his job. But it was really teetering going to Old Trafford that, that day. And, and lo and behold, you know, Harry Maguire gets dropped... Rafael van comes in. De Gea very, very much starts kicking it along in that game compared to his attempts to to, to build out from the back,
0: which was unintuitive as well because he's just kind of booting it at Elanga, who's not exactly like the typical kick the ball at me, yeah, forward, yeah. and and it
2: and it worked. You know, this this was a time where we we didn't quite know what Liverpool we you know a very many people thought Liverpool were going to finish second in in the league at that point in time. So it not only was a victory over your rival, but also looked as something of a scout and a game that might also have title ramifications. So that was really, really big.
1: For what for what it's worth, that game did wind up being the reason we finished in top four. <laughs> if we draw or lose that match, Liverpool finished in top four. So, yeah, yeah. Interesting to think game. about. Uh, and you think was like, <laughs> unveiled in that game as well. Uh,
2: and I went to the Bishop's Blaze pub the morning afterwards to do uh, Talk of Devils, so you know, I was in one of the big Manchester United pubs by Old Trafford the morning afterwards, and, and it was still quite bouncing. I remember feeling how sticky the floor was in that pub, going, right, people been drinking, drinking in here, celebrating. Um, so yeah, that was a really, really big point in time, and then you had that sort of scrappy, scrappy-ish 1-0 victory over Southampton, and they built, and they built and, built, and built, and then the victory over Arsenal as well. This was a victory... When we didn't quite know how good Arsenal were going to be as well. So it, it was all good and promising. And it went very quickly from Eric 10 games or Eric 10 halves or, you know, the people making comments about his follicles <laughs> to going, oh, maybe this guy's up to something. I think the reason, I think those wins really helped with him getting buy in from the Manchester United fan base and the Manchester United players. I I think I said the last time I was here, I said Ten Hag's big, big secret mission is to make sure no one mentions Mauricio Pochettino. And I think...
1: No one has. Yeah, right?
2: I think by the time we got to the World Cup, (laughs) most Manchester United fans, I'd say pretty much every Manchester United fan went, we've got the right man. Went, I'm glad we've got Eric Ten Hag instead of Antonio Conte. So that's one possible reality he's defeated. No one was saying, I wish we had Mauricio Pochettino. That was that done. And, you know, it's the season developed and there's all these links, you know, Pochettino's now going to be the Chelsea manager. I, I'm not hearing anything from United fans going, oh, United should have got him instead. There, there's just a belief now that Ten Hag's the right person. There's now, you know, it's crossed over to concern about, oh, if we don't get the takeover or if he's not properly backed in the transfer market, Ten Hag might leave, which is a real, you consider he's been in charge for 10 months. and United fans are afraid of him leaving to do something else because United might be the problem and not him that shows he's done a good job this season.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I think looking back at the Southampton and Leicester games, I think if we were to watch these games back now, we would say United were really bad in the, in those games. But they came from a place of watching this team under Rangnick and late under Solskjaer where simply being the better side in a match was like something to write home about. Um, it Um It felt like... I, I specifically remember the last half hour of both of those games being super sticky because United had run out of the legs. Players like Christian Eriksen, who got subbed off after an hour and—or, or sorry, should have been subbed mm-hmm. off after an hour. Um, and and then you go into those matches where, you know, United are dominating these Europe League teams. Um, I don't really want to focus too much on these, but Ronaldo's coming back into the side. There are clear issues. United are play- United lose to Aston Villa. United lose to Man City. Ronaldo didn't play that one, but they got battered. Um, and you begin to see these issues kind of like creeping back into the team. Um,
1: those, those were matches especially where you saw... We, we talked earlier about the the issues with buildup and how we wound up going long. The City and Villa matches were ones where you saw the out-of-possession approach fall apart. Which I think was more concerning, right? Because... I mean, more concerning in a different way. The beginning of the season, it was concerning because it was the beginning of the season and it was like, this is all we've seen and this has been catastrophic. The Villa and City performances said told you something different, which was there are still huge holes in the way this team goes about these matches procedurally and that this isn't just going to be a matter of upgrading quality and we're, we're all set. There are still huge tactical steps to be made.
0: Yeah, and I, I think from the lens of a fan base that hasn't really watched a possession team develop. Um, I think what you were seeing was a lot of people who were like, well, we're winning games playing this way. This compromised approach is working. So what's the problem if it doesn't work? And I think in these games, you start to see reasons why it doesn't work. Being unable to play out of the back doesn't allow you to play your way back into games that you struggle in. So you see Man City and Asta Villa both score really early goals in these matches. And the main reason why United can't get back into them is is because they can't actually get the ball on the ground Mm -hmm. and play football against these sides meaningfully. Um, You have coaches who have proficient out-of-possession setups in the Premier League, like Emery and Pep, and you can't pass the ball from back to front, um, and that creates issues for you, no matter what setup you're in, really. Um, If you want to be one of the top teams in the Premier League, you need to be able to play against these sides.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's also that thing of the Premier League now is is just a blood managerial bloodbath if you, and I said this before Ten Hag came in of yeah yeah he's he's probably one of the top ten managers in the world club managers in the world in my opinion but I said he's he's doing this at a point in time where there's at least three managers who are considered better than him and those managers I counted you know Jurgen Klopp Pep Guardiola Thomas Tuchel you could also probably put you know at the time people were very very high on Antonio Conte I thought Antonio Conte I still would think Antonio Conte is a good manager, but everything went wrong last season for him. So you get that. And then, you know, the, the Aston Villa team that could, you know, approached just before the World Cup was, was one managed by O'Neill Emery, which is a very different Aston Villa to what it was three weeks earlier when it was managed by Steven Gerrard and was playing that very, 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 very narrow 4-3-3. So now you've got guys like Emery who are in there. You've, you've got, you know, Lopetegui is no slouch and he's in charge of Wolverhampton Wanderers. The Zerbi's in charge of Brighton. Um, and which, which is this thing again of Manchester United have had a good season and they've in, you know, improved from where they were last season. But the Premier League is getting harder and harder and harder because the Premier League is the richest club league in the world, at least until we figure out how much money Saudi Arabia wants to spend. So he, so Denark's having to come up with different approaches every single week as well. It's not... It's not quite the Bundesliga where pretty much every Bundesliga team wants to play, you know, middle block, counter-attack, attack the space, transition-based football. So if you come at with your technique there, there are weeks where Ten Hag is having to go from playing... Because, you know, played, you know, United played 62 games last season. They were playing Thursday, Sunday, whacking a couple of midweek games. There were times where he was having to, OK, I'm going to play against Crystal Palace, who want to play in a very particular counter-attacking way under Patrick Vieira. And then I have to go play Arsenal later that week to... Very, very different kinds of, of prospect. Um, and he had to figure that out. Also, you know, they're both away games. So he's like, right, do I stay in London and do this or that? Do I go back down? You know, do I go down for, for you know, Crystal Palace, come back up, you know, re-download everyone with a classroom session? Or do I give them uh, an on grass session at a time where he probably wants to do more on grass sessions than he did this season, but he probably couldn't because they were just playing every single three days. So yeah, I think this is the difficulty for Ten Hag. I remember talking to him just before April and I went, look, you're playing nine games next month. How on earth do you teach them the style of football you want to teach them and also still make sure you don't get roundly embarrassed in these nine games? He's
1: like, "Mm, every game's an exam now. And they
2: kind of failed a couple of
1: exams in April. I think they they failed the most important ones, but I think we're getting a little (laughs) bit of ourselves with April, right? One thing, an aside about Conte. I think Conte as a as a deeply superstitious man is probably not the person who would have ever gotten Tottenham to a trophy or, you know, competing for major trophies consistently. Not because I don't think he's a super talented manager, but because I think when the wheels start to fall off the bus, he buys into the wheels okay. falling <laughs> off the bus. So okay. Those okay. interviews are insane. ridiculous. <laughs> those interviews are insane. Um, and that doesn't mean I don't think he's an incredibly, incredibly talented manager. I was very high on Spurs coming into the season because I was very high on him. Um, but yeah, I think that that probably that's how I read what what happened there. But beyond that, you mentioned Tuchel and you you mentioned, Mm -hmm. I mean, now I think Arteta is probably part of the conversation. Absolutely. Um, Deserve,
2: he's now in there. Um, Man, I mean, I mean you know, maybe not top ten, but it, not top ten in the, in the world or in Europe. But the Zerbi now is in. There. I think
1: you could make. Them, I think I'm make th- the argument. Yeah, to your point. I think. Yeah, it's just it's a completely different environment. Almost every side in the Premier League is managed by someone who would not be out of place in in the latter stages of the Champions mm-hmm. League knockouts, which is bizarre. I mean, if if you look ten years ago, that, that that would have been the exception. You would have had maybe one or two managers. And now it's more than half the league. Yeah. Lopetegui managing Wolves is is a huge aberration in the, in the history of, of the sport. <laughs> right? Um,
0: uh, Sorry, Wolves fans who are listening.
1: Yeah. I, I don't mean that as an insult. It's just the, the concentration of managerial talent is incredible. And I, th- I think you're right. I think that was probably a part of the learning curve. Um but to go back to just before the World Cup, really quick, um, I think I, w- I want to talk about that Newcastle Spurs Chelsea period well, we, first. We those, decided to talk
0: extensively about it, right? We we rolled out the whole red carpet. We had a special <laughs> episode. We brought John on to talk about pressing. Um, we did we did the whole thing. So why did we do that?
1: Yeah, I think that was key because suddenly the team looked coherent in a way tactically that it hadn't probably since since the league became as as tactically complex as it now is um, you know we we talk about Pep and city all the time not just because they're the best team in the league but because they changed the way the league is in terms of it the tactical sophistication and I think this is this was, those three matches are so monumentous in this season as a milestone because it was the first Carl you mentioned. Passing tests Mm -hmm. in April and not passing tests. It was the first time United went up against a couple of very tactically sophisticated sides and passed those tests. Not simply by winning, but by outplaying them at at their own game. I mean, they Uh, only won one of
0: the three games.
1: True, but I I think they were handedly the best side against
0: Newcastle at home. I'm I'm feeding into your point. They were soundly the better team in, in all three matches, even though they only won one. And that, to us, was a sign that they were passing the tests, um, as opposed to just winning matches without particularly dominating them. Yeah,
1: precisely. Um, Yeah, and uh, later on, when we get towards the latter half of the season, I want to talk about that again, because I think it comes back into scope. But I think it's key to touch on that.
0: Yeah, so you have a couple of these good performances, mixed with a couple of mixed performances, Um, a little bit of tension with Ronaldo that would play out during the World Cup that I don't really want to (laughs) talk about. Garnacho comes in and scores a ridiculous goal against Fulham. Um, The assist against Villa as well in the EFL Cup. So you begin to see that he might be a star and he might be a figure in the second half of the season. And then the World Cup happens and everyone leaves and everyone gets more tired (laughs) and everyone comes back. And then United go on Mm -hmm. the winning run. 17 wins and three draws. Um, The three draws being against Crystal Palace, Leeds, and Barcelona. And some of the wins, including the Manchester derby, um as well as the tie against barcelona so you begin to see this is the, this is the run where you know we've now we've now been exposed to how how pragmatic or how adaptable is ten hag um what is the outlook of modern tactics as it plays out because i think a lot of united fans are at least until now have been living in this how can we recreate what was existing 10 years ago um and i think even i think even In many ways, the club was in that kind of state of mind. Um, And we've seen, you know, what are the battles associated with some of the with some of those older themes and some of those older playing elements that that have worked for United sides in the past. Um, And so now you have everyone, I think, beginning to come on board with this, beginning to see what the vision is. And then this 20 match unbeaten run, which includes a trophy win, multiple big wins. And just general dominance of the bottom half of the league, which I don't think we've seen post Ferguson. Like, I don't recall another run where United just went and outplayed the entire bottom half of the league over a three month stretch. Um, so, what kind of impact do you think that had? What do you think? Uh, do you think this is just a product of the out of possession approach, inferior opposition, um, United getting better at breaking down blocks because they definitely were this season?
2: I mean, the short answer to this is just a point to your head. And did the Marcus Rashford celebration because this is this is the spell, this is the spell of the, of the you can call it the purple patch or or, or however you want. But the the post World Cup period is where Rashford absolutely dominates. Um, he he equals the record for the most goals scored in consecutive games at Old Trafford, um, and you're really seeing his uh, increased physical frame. You know, he, he, he just looks a lot bigger now than he's ever looked in his life he, he gets that goal against Wolverhampton Wanderers not too long after Christmas where and he's really using his upper body to just get around defenders in a way that I hadn't seen him ever do he has that goal against Nottingham Forest in the League Cup semi-final at the city ground as well where he goes on a dribble yeah but the interesting thing there is he scores with his weaker foot at the near post which is just two things he, he, he doesn't really do up until then you've got the game against West Ham and the FA Cup where he scores a via header as well. Um so you're seeing the team is getting better, that they're, they're they're more aggressive in those counter pressing movements. Up until the Crystal Palace game, uh, Casemiro is available to play football as well, which is really, really helpful. So you're seeing the benefits of this Casemiro, Christian Erickson central midfield pivot. Anthony is useful. Um he's not necessarily you know assisting, but he he brings a balance to that front three that you can you can tell. He's important when he's not in the team, even if, though, it's quite hard to describe what exactly he's doing when he's in it. So you've got that going on in this run as well. And I think the team is really, really solid. Lissandra Martinez is, is, you know, this is a point in time where lassandra Martinez is, is, is making a claim as one of the better centre-backs in the Premier League, if not in, in Europe as well. So the team is in a really, really good place. Yeah, this is also the point in time where Man United fans are beginning to understand Ten Haag does not believe in rotation. Which uh, I'm sure we'll get to in a bit. So you're getting a solid eleven that's playing a lot. They, they're very good at counter pressing. Uh, that you know we didn't give it the proper nickname, but I'm sure we'll do it next season. But that th- defensive three of Rafa, Varane, Sandro Martinez, and Casemiro is so important, and it's so hard to get the ball through that three. Um, so they're playing as many minutes as possible, um, and they've got very good at coming into counter attacking moments. Um, to get the ball to Marcus Rashford so Rashford you know, across this season he's dribbling less he's dribbling over shorter distances and he's playing a lot closer to goal than he did uh, in previous seasons he's, he, I mean, his heat maps look a lot more like his heat maps under Louis van Gaal um, and yeah the plan is count the press really really hard for five seconds after you've lost the ball if not drop back and you know, see if that team can break you down those teams in the bottom half can't really break you down so when you win the ball try and release Rashford wherever possible Um, And Rashford's got a fantastic relationship with Bruno Fernandes. So, uh, you know, you've got to play that quick as Marcus Rashford, and you've got to play that ambitious with through balls as Bruno Fernandes. You're off to the races. Uh,
0: I am 100% sure Rashford's going to come up in a future section of this (laughs) podcast. But I really want to hone in on the fact that whenever United seem to have these runs where they actually dominate other opposition in the bottom half of the league, they tend to be associated with having a forward who is very productive against low blocks. Um, and the other example I can think of is in the back half of the 2020-2021 season when Cavani mm-hmm. was at his best. Um, how important do you guys think this is and how big of a theme do you think this is going forward? That when United have good forwards they look almost, almost consistently better. <laughs> Than, they, than when they don't. Um, I, I don't even think this is a matter of United played universally well across these 20 games. I think a lot of it has to do with having a forward who's going to deliver and get into consistent goal-scoring positions in, across these games. Um, and, I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about how, you know, in some ways United can get an even better forward than Rashford. In some ways, Rashford is the absolute best at what he does. But either way, I think that that's kind of the one of the main key impact differentiators outside tactics, that occurred on this run.
2: There's that you know joke about when Clinton was going for the presidency, they say, is the economy stupid? Um, and I think one of the, the very glib things you can use about Manchester United, why are Manchester United playing good or why are Manchester United playing bad, you know, is the wide players stupid? Just did the wide players do the thing they were supposed to do in a game, in a given game between Manchester United? If, and if the answer is yes, then they probably won that game. And if the answer is no, then they probably didn't. Um, and I term wide players... I also include Bruno Fernandes in that because Fernandes played quite a lot on the left and the right this season as well. So, Ten Hag sh- did a lot of very clever workarounds to get around low blocks in this run, uh, which, you know, we, we should also talk about Valt being not the football player we thought he was going to play. Um, and that was good. And if you consider you've, you know, United's best front three this season is Marcus Rashford on the left-hand side. Anthony Martial up front and Anthony Dos Santos on the right. So Anthony Martial basically stops being able to run after the Manchester derby. He, he he could only play 40 minutes in that game, Ten Hag admitted. Ten Hag said he could play a half. I asked him to play a half. He, he barely managed it. And ever since then, he's not being able to run full pace. So you've got a player who stops being able to run from February, a sprint, but has very good link-up play. Um and can chip in and score goals every now and again. But we're talking handfuls of goals. You've got Anthony, a player who is reluctant to use his weaker foot, but is one of your more willing counter-pressers and unfortunately sometimes gets himself into such heated debates that your other players get sent off trying to defend him. And then you've got Rashford, who is much... you know, His strength is running into space in behind. So the fact that Ten Hag has managed to create a team that is very good at breaking down low blocks when those are your three best players your, your your best friend three is remarkable and the fact that he's managed to use workarounds like okay well I'll use Vecos as the number 10 and I'll push Rashford up as the number nine this is why um, this is why Ten Hag is a better Ajax manager than Ajax managers like Peter Bosch and uh, De Boer. this is why I think United fans will come to love Ten Hag in a way that they haven't loved other post Ferguson manages, because it's not just he's good if you give him the correct tools, but the fact that he can go, okay, all right, I'm going to go to the new Camp and I'm going to play Wout Weghorst in the Fellaini role, shows the, the intelligence of the man. And yes, I'd absolutely love if there's a scenario where United spend their hypothetical transfer war chest to get better forwards, plural. But if they don't, it seems as if Ten Hag's found a way to... Manufacture a semi-consistent amount of goals against the
1: bottom half. Yeah, I, th- I think the what I would add to that is a, a lot <laughs> has been said here. Um, <laughs> player quality definitely made a huge difference during that run uh, in more ways than one. Um, you mentioned Lisandro and, and Veron and Casemiro. Yeah, I think in a lot of instances when United Overcommitted, uh, trying to break down these teams, uh, you know, in an effort to be more effective against low blocks. The the incredible proficiency that the three of them had in duels bailed this team out when they weren't executing out of possession the way they should have. On the other end, I think a huge part of this run was you saw a lot more winning the ball high up the pitch. Uh, United wound up finishing this season with the most direct attacks in the Premier League, which is to say, uh, this is the definition from the analyst, the number of open play sequences that, sequences that start just inside the team's own half and has at least 50% of movement towards the opposition's goal and ends in a shot or touch in the opposition box. So basically what that is is counterattacks. Um, United got very good at, instead of confronting low blocks Evading low blocks, uh, drawing teams out, um, and I think that was a, a really big part of it, and, and part of why you saw Rashford have a purple patch, though obviously his injury played a part as well. Um, yeah, it, it was it was getting getting this personnel moving at speed because that was the strength of this of this personnel grouping, and I think when you talk about improving this team, uh, improving the forward line, a big part of it is. I think in particular at center forward, getting a player who's going to be impactful, not just when the the team is moving at speed, but when the ball is moving slower. Um, you know, a threat from crosses, a threat when you can't have these workarounds. Um, because I think that was a part of the struggles we saw later in the season.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think you've got this... During this purple packs from Rashford, there were people going, "I you know, really hope Rashford stays fit because if he doesn't, we're in we're in a lot of trouble." And lo and behold, he stayed fit for the majority of that spell. Um, but you can only really play the cards you got you got dealt with. And I think we you know Ten Hag has made it very very clear he doesn't want that front three to be the same front three next season. Even throughout that World Cup, he was saying we need a striker. And while Martial is the best suited number nine, there's definitely space to get other players in. So I think anyone drawing up a future squad is saying a striker, a number nine is coming in. And also the development of Garnacho has allowed, allowed, let me put it this way, has relaxed the um, attacking burden on Marcus Rashford. Because now there are times where if Rashford perhaps doesn't have a great game on left wing or isn't available to play on left wing, Garnacho can step in. And I think one reason why there was a little dip later on in the season was because Garnacho wasn't there uh, to come off the bench and add that extra little bit of zip as well. So it went from being pretty much just Marcus and hoping Vecos can score. So this is the good thing about United is that a lot of their problems were, a lot of their problems in, in the were, you know, not as good games this season can be readily identifiable in X player was injured. And then you go, okay, well, is X player going to continue to be injured all the time? And for the majority of the cases, the answer is no. I, I, I'm I, fairly confident that Sandro Martinez, when he comes back, will still be at least 95% as good as what he was this season. Um, Rafa Varane's injury status might have to be monitored, but he seems to be in a good place, or at least in a better place than his first season at United. So that's good. Um, and, and and Martial, I think, even if you love Martial... Everyone is now in agreement, saying we cannot trust Martial's body, so we need to get players to play ahead of Martial. So that, so that's good. Um, and, and then you you move on from there.
0: Not particularly relevant to the to the overall context of the season, I think. But it actually wasn't a twenty match unbeaten run. United lost to there Arsenal in the middle of it. <laughs> um, and the, I, I had a. I, I was gonna say. I was like, I feel like. Did, did we really? And then at the end of the 20 match, not unbeaten run, um, they lost yep. 7-0 to Liverpool. Which is when we, when we begin to see red flags, but it's a little bit of a freak result. Like 7-0 to Liverpool, we both agreed, Case and I at the time, that it didn't really represent the flow of the game. Um, they then go on to draw 0-0 with Southampton, Casemiro gets sent off again. They then lose to Newcastle, and at this point, you're really beginning to see some issues in the team which I think culminates in the 2-2 draw with Sevilla and the eventual 3-0 loss that knocked United out of the Europa League. Um, Across this run, you begin to see a lot of fatigued players. Uh, You begin to see what happens when you pull out uh, key pieces of the side, like Carl just mentioned. Um, You begin to see what happens when United can't fight back from a goal behind again. Um, And you really cement this idea that a way to good pressing sides um, United can really have a lot of trouble. Um, in many ways, this brought us down back to earth or brought us back down to earth and I think led to a little bit of criticism of Eric Ten Hag, uh, less so in his tactical management of this run, uh, but more so in, I think, realizations of the downside of this approach as well as realizations that United squad was tired. They were in all four competitions and they had to find a way to get to the end of the season. Um, what do you guys think about this? And do you think that this is early signs of uh, of trends that are going to exist throughout uh, Ten Hag the United tenure, or do you think that this was just um, just um, first? Season I am a
2: lot more confident that these mistakes won't be repeated because United qualify for the Champions League. So there was a little. There was a little on bit, that? There was a little yeah. bit towards <laughs> the end of the season, right near the end. So you know, to, to skip ahead even further, um, it was after the defeat against Brighton where Ten Hag said words to the effect of finishing the Champions League is really important, not just because it's the Champions League and you want to play in the Champions League, but also because the fixture list is a lot easier when you're a Champions League club. Which was a real, ah, huh. um. We've often heard managers saying Thursday, Sunday is an absolutely brutal schedule. Um, and, and yeah, it, when you're covering United, you know, I've had seasons where I've covered United and they've been in the Champions League and ended up in the Europa League. And it does just completely throw your mind off because um, it, it's not just it it backloads your entire week in a way that is really unwieldy. Um, because you're, I mean, just from a journalist's perspective, you're doing the game on a Thursday. If that's an away game, you, that means you're on an airplane on the Tuesday or the Wednesday. Um, you have to do the Thursday game. Ten Hag tends to do his press conference that normally goes out on Friday there and then, after a Thursday game as well. Then he goes into Sunday. He Again, he, he tries to do his as much f- for the week on a Sunday to the point where I think the Premier League actually told him off and said, come on, you actually have to do more press conferences on the day you're supposed to do it rather than just give all the quotes and just wait for an embargo to lift, like play the game a little bit more. Um, so you have that. And I think that pack scheduling and the fact that, you know, United finished second in their Europa League group. So they had to play that playoff game against Barcelona, which is the extra round of games that very few teams that played in that those competitions went. So yeah, United played 62 games last season. I'm calling it last season now anyway. Uh, they played 62 games last season. That's way more than... A team like Tottenham Hotspur, because you had that extra round of games in the Europa League. You had the fact that you went really deep into the FA Cup. You went went really, really deep into the League Cup. I don't think, you know, this simple virtue of not having to do a playoff game in the Champions League makes life easy. Unless you, don't you dare finish third. Unless you do that. You know, makes life a lot easier for for Ten Hag and, and also the fact that you're playing Tuesday, Wednesdays makes scheduling easier because that means there's game you're more likely to be playing on a Saturday than you are likely to play on a Sunday. And because also you're Manchester United, you're not playing Sunday at a, a friendly hour where everyone's had time to recuperate. You're gonna be playing Sunday, four PM because the broadcasters want you on TV. Right? One one good or bad thing about Manchester United being in the Europa League is every single United game is on TV. Because the broadcast is like, oh, sweet. We don't have to worry about the Saturday 3pm blackout. We d- We're just constantly going to move you here, there and everywhere. Um, which is going to be... I think it's going to be really interesting for next season. Um, because we've got eight Premier League teams going to be in Europe. And four of them are going to be in Europa League. Right? That's going to be a scheduling nightmare. Liverpool. <laughs> have fun, Liverpool. You're going to be on TV a lot next season. <laughs> um have uh, fun. Arsenal, you're going to be on TV loads as well because you, you have so many derby games as well. they amazing.
0: So I somewhat agree that the Champions League is mm-hmm. going to make it easier from a scheduling perspective. However, I also think that the Champions League means more pressure to have your best players on the pitch more often. Whereas in the Europa League, you can often get away but, with it, but he didn't players. rotate. What do you think of that?
1: He Not that he ever he, did very But
0: he much. didn't rotate anyway. And it, you know, this is the thing. It, it took us so. So what you're saying is the rotation, the rotation issue is going to persist. It's just going to be less problematic in a Champions he, League season, yeah. Than in in a theory, Europa and
2: league I season. think because yeah, he's got I, that I League Cup in that. the bank already. The yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going to mention Grace Robinson. Grace on football on Twitter because I think she's amazing. She has been a big proponent of if you are going to, if you're a top four manager, top six manager in the Premier League, and you're approaching these domestic cups, you either get knocked out before the quarterfinals or you try and win it, right? And the the frustrating thing with Ten Hag, especially in the in the Europa League, is that they've spent so much time and energy and effort to get to the quarterfinals and they get knocked out in fairly embarrassing circumstances and you go, if you're going to do that, if you are not going to reach the semi-final stage at the very least, because you're not just going to knocked out against Barcelona, of course, not not football doesn't work that way. And those victories against Barcelona were perhaps the high point of the season to a lot of fans, especially that game at Old Trafford. I
1: would, I would say the, yeah, I would say the second leg against Barcelona is the peak yeah, of the season. But yeah, I'm yeah, getting yeah, ahead yeah. People
2: myself. speak very highly of those games. It's one of the very few match programs I still have in my office. It was one of the best nights at Old Trafford in a long time. But if you're going to get, if you're going to play these cup competitions, either get knocked out, either tank, you know, or you know, either play the kids, blood the youngsters, risk getting, risk getting knocked out before the quarterfinal stage, or you go full strength and you try and win the thing. Ten Hag did; he tried to win everything, which we all thought was a joke in those press conferences. He going, yeah, I want to win every game. I'm like, ah, real funny. And then he just kept playing Ericsson. I'm going, what, what are you doing? Um... And I think he he might get better, yeah. I think if United get knocked out at the FA Cup fifth round next season, people aren't going to be annoyed because he's got a League Cup in his back pocket. Whereas if he, if he had two seasons of not winning any silverware, people would have gone, oh, hang on, Ten Hag's prolonging this. Whereas now, yeah, he's probably giving himself breathing room. I don't think he will rotate in the Cups next year based on all the stuff I, I listen to him in these press conferences. But if Antonio Lange rocked up in the FA Cup third round next season, I don't think anyone's going to get mad. I think people will be quite happy about that.
1: Yeah, and I I, I would we're we're talking about these cups in the context of fatigue. We've breezed over the World Cup as if it was just we two months off. We breezed over the League Cup final and too. Not too <laughs> we we did. But I I just want to I I want to talk on the speak, speak to the to the World Cup for a second because that was most of United's players were d- playing deep into that tournament. Um, this was a fatigued squad coming back from that. And that won't be happening next year. So I think if you accept what you're saying, Carl, that the Champions League schedule was easier, which I I think I agree with, and there will be no World Cup, I do think that is... Those are two very positive things for United. And if you can add on to that, getting physically more... Building up the squad through the Mm -hmm. transfer market this summer in terms of physicality... I think you could wind up with a team that's much, much more capable of, of, of pressing consistently, controlling matches consistently, and maybe you don't fail those tests, exams, as we put it, in April against Newcastle and... Um, oh my gosh, this, this what, was, that, what was that other oh, big loss in the April Liverpool that's one. evading me? No, that's in March. Uh, Brighton? Yeah. Did we get... Yeah. yeah.
2: The springtime, really, really fun. And then after the League Cup final, you have the two... I think... I think the best way to to or how I break up the season in my head is you've got the two defeats then you've got the you know lead up to the world cup period where Casemiro is better than, and you'll see in and you're seeing the beginnings of things United look like a Europa League quality team. Yeah. Then you've got the post world cup period which I call the Rashford purple patch and I take this roughly up until the league cup final and and United look like a Champions League quality team because they beat Barcelona they win the League Cup, they, there's the, they're in this little phase like, oh, maybe they're in a title race. Maybe they're not. Maybe they are. Maybe they're not. And every time they look like they're in a title race, you, you see a result. They're, they're not in a title race. Boom. And then I think after League Cup, you get this phase where you, you, you're you not quite sure if they're Champions League quality or Europa League quality. And it keeps going back and forth and back and forth. Um, and, you know, Oligon and Solskjaer had this as well where they were just absolutely smoking teams in the Europa League knockouts but then playing teams in the top six and you're going, mm, maybe, not sure. Um, and Ten Hag seems to have the same difficulty because I think a lot of it has to do with personnel in that there's... I can't wave a magic wand and make Fred or Scott McTominay better at receiving the ball. Um, and I can't... I think one thing that was also interesting was Diogo Dallo returned from the World Cup worse. You know, perhaps it was the injury or whatnot, but his performances post-World Cup were not as good... As what, as what they were. Um, and then, I mean, thankfully, Aaron wan went from being a person who wasn't factoring before the World Cup, but then looked like an option as well. But I, I still don't have questions of a, either one of them at right back. And then you have the spa- the phase where, as as Aaron pointed out, it was the Newcastle defeat after the League Cup. And that began, that began a phase of what... A lot of people went, are United going to finish in the top four? Which... I personally was never worried about it, but a lot of people were.
0: Yeah, and I think that signaled a period where both Case and I were kind of waiting for the season to end. Um, increasingly, I think looking for topics to talk about on the podcast because we saw kind of a tired version of the tactics we des- we described throughout the season playing out. Um, a fun fact about the World Cup is that you can assemble a full starting 11 outside goalkeeper of United players who went to the quarterfinal or further in the world cup. Um, If you take what you think United starting 11 is replace Ericsson with Fred and replace Martial with Weghorst, every single player made it to at least the quarterfinal. Um, And so we're, we're really looking for the season to end at this point. United are tired and I don't think we see the best of this team, but they do enough to get the top four. They don't do enough to turn that FA cup final. Um, which was sad, but I don't think unexpected. Um, and yeah, that that pretty much describes the season. Is there anything you guys want to add from that ending period of the season? Um,
2: I so I was not worried about United finishing the top four, and again, I was on talk of Devils. I was being asked by MUTV and other people why you know do you think United finished in the top four? What's the reason behind their really bad away record? And th- there was a lot talked about their away record in this in this lead-in, which is that thing of. Michael Cox once said, "You should always be worried. You should always be skeptical of football stats that combine two football stats in the same sentence. Because um, whenever they do that, they're actually doing, it's like a deaf sleight of hand. And I keep doing a hand motion here, and Casey's like nodding his head. Um, so you know, the away record is Manchester United hadn't beaten a team away from home in the top half, which is one of those things of okay, that's not that's concerning, but not devastating." If you looked at, I remember looking after, it was after after they lost against Brighton. Everyone's like, oh God, this is it. Brighton's going to sneak in or Liverpool's going to sneak in. And yeah, like, well, Liverpool play more games than United. And if you actually look at the away league table, United were still fifth. Um, the, the problem was when United, and the problem was with United this, this last season. I keep calling it, I'm going to keep calling it last season. The problem with United in 22-23 was when they had a stinker, they really had a stinker. Um, And this is the problem where your tactical system is based very much on what talents two or three individuals can bring rather than can your system cover up the failures of two or three individuals. Um, And I think as United get better, it it will swap. Uh, So that phase, I wasn't concerned because I went, well, no, if you look at the fixture list, it's the, the quality of the press from the opponent teams shouldn't concern you. You know, Fulham, their press isn't super aggressive, so United should be able to play through them. Chelsea on the Frank Lampard, press wasn't very... I I have no idea what a Frank Lampard team does out of possession, so I wasn't worried about that (coughs) game. Whereas it was the games against Brentford. Yeah, it was the games against Brentford. It was the games against Aston Villa away from or at home that you're going, okay, these teams have really well-defined structure out of possession and pressing um, at a time when Lissandro Martinez was injured. So United were really vulnerable if you pressed them high up the field. I think that's that was a really big thing. That phase in particular of are United going to finish in top four was a really interesting case of um how much have you been paying attention to what Manchester United do? And I think people that couldn't explain why United were so bad away from them against the top half perhaps didn't quite yet grasp what United were good at and what United were especially vulnerable
1: against. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Basically to a T, I think in terms of, you mentioned key moments in the season, you mentioned the the Newcastle, the cup final win. I think an amusing thing about that cup final win, or maybe amusing is the wrong word, is United did not play their best football in that match by any stretch of the imagination. They were pinned for most of that match uh, in their own half. Same is true of Arsenal away, uh, which... By the scoreline and the way things went, it makes it look like it was a back-and-forth match. But the reality was, United were camped in their own half for most of it. Um, and and there are other examples of that throughout the season. Um, and so, the way I would summarize this this season was comprehensively being better than the teams they were supposed to be better than and managing to pull out enough results at home against the teams that they were not supposed to be better than to look a bit better than they actually were. (laughs) Um, and I think next season, what you're looking for is exactly what you just described, Carl, things to flip and, and to not be hiding your weaknesses so much anymore. and Instead, be trying to maximize your, your best players or vice versa, actually. Um, in a way that allows you to go away to these sides, these sides that are supposed to be better than you. And really at a certain point, that should no longer be true, right? The expectation should be that United are better than these sides and can go away to them and not spend the whole match in their own half. Um, and, and I think, you know, Liverpool, City, Arsenal ugh, are obvious examples of that. Newcastle and Brighton are examples as well, though, which is a pro- is is the real problem. So right?
2: something uh, before uh, United played Chelsea right at the end of the season. I, I had my last press conference with Ten Hag, and I, I asked him. You know, I said, "Look, you, you, this is the last top six clash uh, of the season. How, how how do you rank the quality of the top six to, to compare to the rest of the league?" And he Ten Hag does this thing every now and then. He looked at me, and went, "Compared to the rest of this league, or the Champions League, or like the rest of Europe?" I went, "No." You know, I said, the Premier League. He's like, okay, cool. And he's like, right, top six, very, very difficult. But the Premier League is just ridiculously difficult now. And then he said, you can't just think of the top six anymore. Brighton, very, very hard. Aston Villa, very, very hard. And the thing I found interesting was he mentioned Brentford as hard as well. Um, And United's record against the top six is fine. I think they finished... Never actually got to publish the piece I, I was writing about it because Mason Mount news came in, but their record was fine. Chelsea were abhorrent, so were Spurs. Um, so United were better than those two, uh, but their defeats against City, you know, their away record against these teams held them back. But then if you expand it further and you include Newcastle, you include Villa, you include Brighton, and you include Brentford, you get slightly better because they, you know, they didn't, you know, get better. But Ten Hag is the fact that Ten Hag is including Brentford in his definition of the hardest teams in the league reckons to me like, okay, this guy is thinking even further ahead than other managers are. Or than your average layman, right? Because I'm thinking, oh, okay, United finished third, but Chelsea aren't going to be that bad next season. Spurs aren't going to be that bad next season. It's going to be at least six to get into four again. And Ten Hag seems to be going, no, it's almost seven to get into that top four, perhaps even eight if if Thomas Frank can sort himself out. So that's the interesting
1: I think Brentford will struggle without Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think I think
2: that, that's the the interesting concern in that there, you know, Ten Hag, in Ten Hag's view, or my interpretation of that question, Ten Hag was like there are eight teams in the Premier League that can give you the work on any given day. If you don't if you don't turn up on any if you don't turn up, if you don't pay attention to the rules, which is his favourite one of his favourite words If you don't pay attention to his rules, there are eight teams in the Premier League that can roundly embarrass you. Uh, And the fact that he's mindful of that is good. What can he do to stop that without getting two to three new first team players is the conundrum.
0: We're going to get you to talk about (laughs) your transfer preferences in the second half. So so before we do that, um, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, We got a quick announcement that we wanted to make for you guys. And then when we come back, we're going to hand out some meaningless awards between the three of us. Um, Maybe we'll call them the devils or maybe we'll call them the details. I don't know. And hopefully you enjoy that. So stay tuned. Welcome back. Before we get back to our season review, we wanted to take a quick few minutes to talk about something Case and I are both really passionate about. And we've welcomed the lovely Stephen Ganavas, who co-runs Scouted Football, to help us out. While we're hoping to one day have Stephen on to chat with us about one of his beloved Juventus players leaving them for Manchester United, today we're talking about Scouted Football's new campaign. Stephen, welcome to Devils in the Details. Would you like to say a bit about what you guys do at Scouted Football and what you're doing in the upcoming weeks?
3: Yeah, so uh, thanks all, uh, to both of you for, for having me on. Uh, at Scattered we are basically a platform been going for close to, to 10 years now, uh, covering everything to do with uh, young football players, youth football, uh, youth tournaments, whatever it is, uh, all over the world. So in the past, we've done 12 print magazines from I think it was 2019 to 2021. And we've just launched a campaign in the last couple of weeks uh, to try to, to bring the print magazine back in a, a bigger way, a better way, a more sustainable way for us uh, into the future. But doing all the same things that we've done in the past with uh, player profiles and a bunch of our uh, favorite players, uh, as well as uh, integrating some, some features throughout the, throughout the magazine. So, yeah, we're really uh, excited to launch it and hopefully we can uh, get it off the ground.
0: Awesome. So, Stephen, if I wanted to subscribe to the crowdfunding campaign, which I do, how would I go about doing that?
3: Yeah, so hopefully we can uh, get a link to it in you guys' podcast description. You'll find yeah, it there. Yeah, we'll definitely do that. Um, and then uh, also, uh, if you want to check out our Twitter, most of you are probably already at least aware of it, but it's uh, FTBL on Twitter and the, uh, the Kickstarter campaign is pinned to the, the top of our profile there.
0: Awesome. So, we'll get that link to the Kickstarter in the description. We'll also get a link to your Twitter, which we also follow from the Devils in the Details account. Case and I both want to do this because we love Scouted. Um, we both have, in different capacities, been involved in Scouted in the past, and I'm sure Case would agree that content of this quality, and also the amazing team they have, like so many of our friends, so many great people from the space work on Scouted football. It's increasingly rare in football, and we think this this is something that you guys might be interested in, so... Um we wanted to add this into our podcast.
1: Yeah, I I would go beyond that. I'm, not only is the content awesome, the the way that they're trying to reboot the 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 handbook is very very cool, uh, especially if you are if you're disappointed often with the way other media companies are run and, and and the the way other media is produced, I think you should at least take a look at this. Uh because I think it's really cool beyond just the content which I also think the content is awesome I've written for a few of the notebooks I re- I've read all of them so uh, this is this is content we consume ourselves and and if you listen regularly this is this is part of how we inform ourselves so I cannot recommend more
3: and we'll have you contributing as well in the we've also launched a, a sub stack to kind of be an accompaniment to the to the magazines and so uh yeah case will be also doing a piece i believe for that in the the coming weeks so you can also yeah jump in our twitter and uh find a link to our substack there as well
0: yeah that's uh that's coming soon thank you for joining us steven we really do want to have you back someday so hopefully we have a connection that gives us an excuse to bring you on to chat about something um something yeah. that's in your domain
3: always happy to to come back guys and thanks again very much for uh for having me on
0: Alright, welcome back. And we're not much like other award shows. We always start with the big ones first. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna go around and get each of you to name who you think should win this award. Starting with player of the season and as our lovely guest Carl gets to go first.
2: Ha <laughs> uh Lissandra Martinez for me. Okay. I think I think those are genuine periods. If you look at this Manchester United starting lineup, there's Three players, you can say they're top five in their position, and Martinez is one of them. And I think the only time Martinez had a really bad game against Liverpool, but that's about it. And when he was injured, you the, the team was just noticeably worse. So the Martinez is my player of the
0: season. Awesome case.
1: Yeah, I, I like the Mart- uh, the Martinez shout, shout. I think um the reason I shy away. I think if you if if this were if we were to conceptualize this award as Player who did their job at the highest level, I would say Martinez. Mm-hmm. Um, uh-huh. But I think I'm gonna go Rashford instead, um, mm-hmm. simply on the basis that I think he probably accounted for so many points. Um, I, there were there were so many matches in this season, especially during that not unbeaten run uh, from <laughs> from December to February, where. Rashford completely bailed the side out. I remember the Wolves match. He came on as a substitute. Um, yep. The Forest match. He scored the opener in the the FA Cup. Um, th- those are the two that pop out in my head, but there are so many more. Um, I think he scored against... Yeah, I just... He had so many moments such that I'd, I think you can't give it to anyone else, but that doesn't mean I think he was necessarily the best player on the pitch for every minute of the season
2: i'm very glad you've you've given your award to Rashid, so i didn't have to <laughs> <laughs>
0: um hey i'll tell you what if devils in the details was a podcast last season i think the three of us would have had zero players of the season um but this time we yep. all have different players this season cuz i'm going to pick bruno fernandes great oh amazing <laughs> um so first of all bruno got 29 goal involvements despite underperforming his expected assists which is ridiculous and he didn't just underperform he had about 16.7 expected assists in the premier league and got eight now assists.
2: okay okay right okay first of all i hate goal involvements i i think i think as 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 men of numbers I, th- I think as men of numbers, we should be better than goal involvements. And to combine goals, which is a nice, static, discrete action, with, with, a, with a very, very non discrete stat as a statistics, which can be very, very noisy and relies on your relationship with someone else, is too much. You can say they've got this many goals, and you can say they've got this many assists in the same sentence, but to group them together and call them goal involvements, I think that's a cheat. I also think I mean surely everyone underperforms expected assists, right no unless you're playing no no no, no. Ab-
0: most players over- <laughs> actually most players at the top overperform their expected assists in a given Now, season.
2: isn't that a, if you if now again, if you outperform your expected assists, that doesn't really have anything to do with you as a person. No exactly that so that's to my do point right? That you're playing with you're playing next to a superstar um, there there's this are you aware of what a Tom Carroll assist is?
0: Uh, you're saying your your idea is that you pass it to someone who scores a worldie. There you go.
2: Yeah, a Tom Carroll was. But, but that's not or a, that's not what or, Bruno Fernandez or is or, doing. Or, the, or the Busquets assist where he just sort of taps it and, and Messi goes and dribbles past five people. Yes, right. Um, so this is why one. This is also why I think golden moments are bad because it really just completely hides that sort of assist. Um, I absolutely understand your point. Bruno Fernandez was exceptional. In twenty two twenty three, and he was playing out of his mind, and his ability to just like give me the ball, and I'll just create things all the time. I don't get tired for some reason, and I just keep going and going and going, and I can make a bad attack good because I'm just so hyperactive. Fantastic! Don't use goal involvements to, <laughs> to prove it.
1: Right, I'll, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. I want to, I want to make a point just for the for the sake of the listeners. <laughs> Aaron is right that um, players typically slightly overperform their expected assists on average in the top half of the Premier League. However, that's not it's not pure luck, the over and under mm-hmm. performance, because expected assists isn't a perfect model. And so there are instances where you can deliver two passes and empirically, the way they'll be represented in a computer, they are at the exact same pass. But in reality they fall one of the passes might fall perfectly in the stride of the receiving player, whereas another one might fall Just half a step behind them, and that's going to seriously impact the 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 quality of the the ability of the player to to take the chance. Though the actual expected assist value that you might get for that chance might be the same. So it's not these models aren't perfect, and so players who overperform expected assists, there is a certain degree of skill in it. It's difficult to say how much. It's not a lot. But I do think mm-hmm. it, you need to keep it in mind. That's all I'm I just gonna, want.
2: It's a, I'm going it's, it's to... It's a noisy stat. And I think... Okay, and this is me not to go full dad, but um I do go to Old Trafford a lot. And Old Trafford is his own microclimate. And this this is going to sound stupid. I have seen first halves at Manchester United that are drier than them second halves. So Bruno Fernandes could make the exact same pass. <laughs> um That could just be noticeably different just because of the weather conditions has dramatically changed. Um, and I'm sure if you talk to a lot, a lot of these United fans and United pros, they will talk to you about the difference of scoring in front of the Stratford End. <laughs> so like, I, could, I can even imagine if you want, if if you drill down deep enough into Manchester United games on expected assists, I, I would wager, a shiny penny, that Bruno Fernandes. I know you know you when you put it on a computer there's one arrow saying that way's the goal. But if you broke it down saying here's all the times he was passing that way and all the times he was passing that way, I wager that way, as in towards the Stratford end, would have a higher expected assists than passing away from it. Hold on though. I'm not gonna fa- I'm not gonna fact check that, so you can okay. just deal with that problem yourself. I'll move
0: from the goal <laughs> involvement <laughs> argument here. But before I do, I'm just gonna he Bruno has historically outperformed yes. his expected assists. For Manchester United, okay, and this right. season he is way below his expected assists. Right. Not. All right. I also think the quality of United's forwards means that they facilitate lower xG chances than equivalent other teams in the table. So if you're going to make an argument that the xG is being inflated or deflated relative to the quality of passes Bruno is making, no I argument, no such argument was lean being made in favor. <laughs> no, of no, not made. Okay,
2: I'm just. All I was doing this- is is just being an oink and saying, <laughs> as men, are, uh, I, I, this is why I said, as men of numbers, as men who respect the numbers, we must also be aware that our numbers, the way we come about these numbers, are flawed, or, or there is noise involved sure. in those numbers that we need absolutely no absolutely. <laughs> Bruno
1: has undoubtedly been very very unlucky in terms of his his assist numbers this season. He has he absolutely. has created far more than he's been rewarded for. In terms of Absolutely. his assist numbers. Let me go to no the second half of the Bruno that. Spiel. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. <laughs> okay. I feel like on the entire season, we have spent a lot of it talking about what United are trying to do tactically. And in the context of that, Bruno can be a really frustrating player. Um and I think a lot of our episodes have been about things that Bruno does that govern the way United play tactically or govern problems that United have. However, I also think without Bruno, it's been pretty clear that united are entirely useless um and (laughs) i think people talk about the impact of different players on the side i don't think any of them come even close to what happens when you take bruno out of that team um he he actually is the complete lifeblood of the attack um and everything goes through him and i feel like that makes him a good devils in the details player of the season because i think it's time for me to give him the credit that he deserves. And also, I think he's had his best season yet um, under Ten Hag, which I never thought I'd say. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, I think that's a really nuanced and
2: well-rounded <laughs> assessment of Bruno Fernandes. And he has lots of goal involved, it's no kidding. <laughs> I, all right, I will, I will, I will. a thought-provoking question. Why do you think his shooting's gone up askew in the, late, in the latter half of last season? Because there were two or three chances where Bruno Fernandes was cleaning on through and goal, I'm like, "Oh, this is a goal!" And then he just shot wildly off of target. Tough to it's say.
1: Random. I mean, I mean yeah. it' tough to say. We'll we'll see if it carries on th- into next season. Um, yeah, I, my inclination is to say could just be random, but my 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 even stronger inclination is to say let's wait and see. <laughs>
0: Um <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, one thing I will say is his goal on the final match of the season, where Fred puts him through, and he like puts the goalkeeper on the floor and lobs it over him is just unbelievable. And I feel like it's hard. It, it's hard for me to come up with a reasonable claim that his shooting is falling off. Um, even though case is right, we should probably wait and see.
2: I, oh, yeah. falling off, perhaps not. I, I will say it just appeared there was a little bit of a glitch in his ball mm. striking, in the, in the final six weeks. And this, you know, my favorite explanation for many things in European football: why, why is the thing in European football not as good as it used to be? The knackered
1: yeah. Uh,
0: I, the sh- I, I wonder I'm if Bruno argument feels tired. I, yeah, I, I question Brunner's whether that man <laughs> feels fatigue, but yes, yes, it's he probably does. Um, all right, <laughs> disappointment of the season and I'm gonna go to case first this time
1: ooh um I think there are a few options here oh, obviously overall a good season, but I think for me, the biggest disappointment was that Sancho didn't wind up having the the breakout that I think we anticipated and and you know that there's a lot of reasons you can point out for why that may have been. We didn't wind up playing the style of football that I think over the course of the season, we thought we might get to. And you could say that could have had an impact. He finished the season strong. Um, but I'd say that's that's the biggest disappoint for, disappointment for me. Because I I am significantly lower on who he is truly as a player than I was 12 months ago.
0: I think, I, I think that yeah. was mine too. I agree. I,
2: I, I really want Sancho to come good at Manchester United, but I'm losing confidence that he will I'm losing confidence that we'll ever see Dortmund Sancho I think Sancho can still be a good player and can still contribute at Manchester United Um, but in terms of Dortmund level this player was worth 73 million and people were going just pay the money when Dortmund were looking for 120 million I think that time might have passed Uh, it's a pity it's a pity You know the, the lack of explosive pace was an issue, but I think that can be worked around if you get a correct play around him. Going into the season, I didn't necessarily want United to buy a right-sided player. I just went, well, just just tell Sancho, that's your role. You're going to be the right-sided option. You're going to play as many games as possible. And I think Sancho is approaching a stage where I want him to play 90 minutes, back-to-back-to-back-to-back to back to back to back on the right-hand side and being told, you're playing here and you, are, you figure it out. And if you don't figure out, we're just going to leave you out there until you figure it out. Um, it, it's It's been a really interesting time with him. I'm, I'm willing... I'm not selling my final bit of Sancho stock until January. Yeah, I agree. But I, have I think that's where I'm at. But, but I have considerably less stock now than I did this time last year.
0: Yeah, I think you guys covered it well. Um, and we have a lot more to get through, so... <laughs> Surprise of the season. Positive surprise of the season. I'll start here. Um, There was a period in the middle of the season that continued towards the end of the season where Fred was getting goal involvements every single game. And (laughs) I loved every second of it. Um, I think the purchase of Casemiro, combined with the manager who I think understands Fred a little bit better for what he's good at and what he's not, um, has has made Fred a lot more usable as a squad player to his strengths. Um, and while I don't think his strengths suit being a member of this team long term, it was fun to see what could have been this whole time um, if United had built the right structure around um, what they had when they bought Fred as a player.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think Fred's gone through a real weird up and down career. Consider he—I remember reading on a website saying Fred is going to be the player to to unleash Pogba. Uh, okay, right, fine. And they're, you know, on paper, Nemanja Matic, six, Fred, eight, Pogba, four, four through three on the left. That that should have been better than what it was. Uh, and then you had McFred, and McFred was always very interesting because you've got two players, neither one who wants to be the six, b- combining to be a six, and, and having both of them oscillate up and down. Uh, and now he seems to be a lot more comfortable. Fred's a weird player in that even when you compliment him, you sound like you're talking about an 18 year old academy product, rather than a player who's approaching 30, who's you know won multiple league titles in Ukraine uh, and, and cost 52 million. So, yeah, weird player. I think the big surprise this season is just how many players have been good for prolonged periods. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and, and Aaron said it. You know, if you did Devil in Details last season, I don't know who your player of the season would be. And there was it was a point after the Manchester Derby victory where I remember talking to Ian Irvin saying the Manchester United player of the season is going to be an outfield player. That doesn't happen too often because there's won so many. Yeah, uh, you know, United, United had this thing where it's like, okay, well, this is a bad season. Just give the award to the hair. Um, and then you know when Aaron went and Herrera won, it was a big like. It's it's an outfield player, hooray! And then you got to February where it's definitely going to be an outfield player and there's more than one candidate for it. Oh my God, is this what a good football team can do? You've got more than one outfield player who can willingly contribute. So that was the surprise. The surprise was just how many players came good for long periods of time. I, I did not see that Fred purple patch. I did not see Marcus Rashford being this good for this long. I did not see... I didn't see Luke Shaw being this good, not only at left back but also at left centre mm. back as well.
0: Oh, I that's didn't a see good Rafael one. Aran. That's a good surprise. this season.
2: I didn't see Raphaël Varane playing this many games. You know, I didn't see Aaron Wambasaka returning from the World Cup break being like, "Okay, I'm a starting player again." But what? But are you, I was sure you were getting a sold in January. Um, but Ten-, Ten Ark said, you know, the it was the game against Cadiz in the World Cup break that really. Kicked on his career at United and show Ten Hag that he can contribute. And I, I went back and watched that game. T- Wan Bissaka is really bad in it. I don't. I don't know the thing that <laughs> Ten Hag saw in Wan Bissaka <laughs> in that game against Cadiz. You're
0: I don't. I the I can't see podcast, it. Podcast, yeah. but <laughs> I don't. I don't.
2: I don't know what Ten Hag saw. But there's something Wan Bissaka does in and around that week that makes Ten Hag go, "I'm keeping you, and you're gonna you're gonna contribute." So that's the surprise. The surprise wasn't. I I I, you know, I freely admit. Before a ball was kicked, I thought United were going to finish sixth.
0: I did as well. I actually meant to compile audio from the first episode where we predict United to finish sixth in the Premier League. Um, but both both Case and I agreed that we thought United would finish sixth and they finished third and won a trophy and made it final. So, mm.
1: pretty, it, good? Right?
0: Like, uh, pretty good. Pretty good, pretty good, pretty <laughs> good. Goal of the season? Hold on, oh, hold on. Case, I didn't get to surprise. You had a surprise. <laughs> sorry, sorry. The surprise is that Case doesn't get to say a
1: surprise, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think for me it has to be Garnacho. Um, I I wasn't even on, on my radar, really. I mean, I knew who he was, but I it was not on my radar that he would be playing major minutes this season. Like, it didn't occur mm-hmm. to me last August that that was really going to be a thing. And not only did he play major minutes, not only did he play major minutes, it wasn't a problem when he played major minutes. It was a positive. He he made a huge impact, especially when he was coming off the bench. You could argue he has the moment of the season as well. Yeah, I think it, for me it has to be him.
0: Sweet. Wait, so what's that moment?
1: Yeah, so I guess this is an easy segue. I don't know if this is actually my moment of the season, but... Maybe, maybe if we had like a, a limbs of the season, this would be it. Uh, and and it was his his last minute winner against Fulham just before. Oh, that is limbs of the season, for just sure. before for the sure. the World Cup break. I was there. It was outrageous. <laughs> I wish, I wish I'd been there because, yeah, I I was in the the United Bar, the United Fan Bar in Boston, and and it was pretty crazy there on its own. So I can't imagine what it was like at the stadium. Uh, yeah, there was, there was a lot of dejected Fulham fans. Um,
2: <laughs> I, I suppose that one was hard for me because you had that amazing, joyous moment of, oh my God, Garnaccio, who is this kid? He's here. He's absolutely scored. He scored a goal in Fergie time. Amazing. Lift the shirt up. You leave Craven Cottage. You get on the train. You get back to where you are in London. You switch on Twitter. Cristiano Ronaldo does a tell-all interview yeah. with Piers Morgan. Oh, for the love of... <laughs> Yeah, um, and the fact that that happened on the same day, <laughs> I, th- I think, I genuinely, if Garnacho hadn't scored when he did on that day, United's World Cup break
1: would have been very different.
2: Would have been a very different, mm. a lot more sour, right? Because it what you had was an academy youngster scored a winning goal. United a top four, top four thereabouts. Christian Cristiano was causing a, a, a mess. And you're like, well, you know, okay. Ten Hag has the upper hand here. He can say, I've got this kid, Garnacho, who can contribute instead. We'll deal with the Ronaldo situation, whatever. Whereas if it, if it had been the draw and Ronaldo was saying all these things, some of them which were very true and had been reported for several years before Ronaldo even said them, then you're going, oh, oh. you know. I think there's, there's a reality where the loan deal for Val Vecos is received very differently if Garnaccio hadn't scored against Fulham.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I completely Other agree. Other moments? Other moments, anyone? <laughs> Winning the League Cup. Again, I was yeah. there and it was just... That was mine, yeah.
2: That game, I think we might come back to that game later on and go, hmm, United were quite lucky that Joe Willock was injured. But they have really just bossed them. They really bossed them. Um, to, you can almost combine them—a moment of the season and a game of the season. Or, or do you, do the you season.
0: think they? Do you think they bossed Newcastle in that game, or do you think they just managed the occasion really well?
2: They managed the occasion really well. The the most surprising game, or like a great moment of the season that really, really—I'll tell you what—there was a game of the season that also was a massive surprise of the season, and that was at home against Tottenham Hotspur,
0: mm. where yes,
2: at half t- you know, United battered them in the first half. They just kept getting into the front of the penalty area and taking long shots. You know, okay, they haven't scored yet, but mm, mm, they going What's going on? What's going on? Yeah. Well, I was really scared, and low. I so that was a rare game when I wasn't in the press box. I was just in amongst the fans, and loads of United fans went, "Oh God, I'm really scared. If we don't score, you just know Spurs are going to score right at the start of the second half." And the United did, and then they scored twice, and they just they stomped on them. And it was the first real. I don't have to be scared of the old United coming back. Because there's a new version of United here that's good. So that game that game sticks in my memory. That was the first real like, ah, Ten Hag's. Ten Hag's not just getting them to good Oli Gunnar Solskjaer levels, but he's also taking them further.
1: Yeah. Uh, in terms of other moments of the season, I would throw out there Casemiro equaliser against Chelsea away. Oh, that um, was terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> that That was basically was, exactly... Yeah, yeah. But, but Carl, that, uh, ma- was that match bu- was almost exactly was what you like just described. <laughs> 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 um, that was exactly what you described, right? United outplayed Chelsea in the first half there. Then Chelsea got back into the match, had a lot more control in the second half. They got a very dicey penalty. And you're sitting there like, oh, it happened again. We're getting nothing from this match and we definitely deserved something. But then it, it flipped on its head. And then the other moment I would say is, is the Antony winner against Barcelona.
0: Oh yeah, uh, that was yeah, that was gonna be yeah. Yeah. Is that your one? I mean, no, mine was the was the League Cup final, and then my <laughs> other one was the Spurs win. But then my third one would be the Antony winner. Um and just wanting Antony to score so that people would give him credit, because it feels like whenever United buy a player for a big fee everyone loses their minds over it for no reason. And like, I mean, I know United shouldn't have paid that fee for Anthony, but I think he's had a good season um, for what I thought he was as a player. I think it's been an adaptation season. And I think he's had some big moments. Like he scored against Arsenal. He scored against Barcelona. He scored against Manchester City, even though the game ended horribly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I was, ha- I was the happy Barcelona for him.
2: The Barcelona one sticks out because they went a goal. They were goal down at halftime. And there have been very few moments in recent memory and please with recent memory is in starting from January 2022. Yeah. Where I, I go, oh God, Manchester United have to do this the hard way and win. You know, and they did it. They went toe-to-toe with a Barcelona team that had an amazing defensive record and I just went, all right, we're just going to... We're going to break your nose. And they did it. Uh, Garnacho was incredible coming off the bench in that game as well and that was another one of I'm I'm always reluctant to say Garnacho has it but Garnacho definitely has something and, and I'm I'm excited to see what that something can be in, in in next season
0: All right I think we also had many contenders there for goal of the season but another one I'm going to throw in <laughs> is the Rashford goal against Arsenal even though United went on to lose oh, the yeah. game, he just he just picked up the ball and decided, yeah, you know what? That one's going in the net. And Rashford <laughs> does that a couple times a season, and it's really frustrating when he misses, but when it goes in, it feels amazing. So, that's my choice for goal of the season.
1: Goal of the season, I think for me it has to be the team goal that Rashford finishes off, uh just a tap in. I forget who it was against, but I think do you, I think maybe it's against Southampton? It's 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 Bruno's it's, goal. Hmm. I have to I have Bruno to, gets a I've got Bruno
2: a finishes off a team goal against Southampton when they're in the green kit, and that's my goal of the season. Because that is that's ten hardball to a T. Um and I don't I don't normally go for it's gonna drive I don't, don't normally. I don't normally go for team goals, I normally go for dribbles or long range pingers, but there's a goal right at the start of the season in, against Southampton in August that is finished by Bruno and it is Okay, it's quintessential Ten Hag ball. Carl, I'm thinking of a
1: goal later in the season though. Okay. Uh, I, I know so which you, one you're thinking of. That is a great goal. It,
0: it's not Southampton then though, cuz I'm pretty sure United only played Southampton twice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, the Southampton goal was nice. <laughs> yeah. it's it,
2: it's you know, a lot of the highlights don't show the original build up, but it's a real like yep, that's Ten Hag football. We're going to have the center backs drawing the press, work and overload one side and then Cross it to the penalty area for a pullback that's going to be finished by one of our midfielders. You know, can score that goal a lot more the better they get. To the point of, you know, you know, Man City have that triple tap, low cross, FIFA goal. Ten Hag has this goal, and he will score. Well, Casey's running out of time. I know it's going is, in the recycling he's bin. Running a out second, of time. his
0: detail is going in the recycling bin for, for best goal. Just pick Casemiro's one. Come
1: yeah, on. I was about to say, if I can't have if I can't have this one, then I will take the, the Casemiro you, scissor kick. You Outrageous. still have
0: till the end of the podcast, um and, and while you keep searching, uh, I'm gonna get Carl to give Ten Hog a grade out of ten. Seven. Seven,
2: he's a B plus. This is a B plus season. You know, top four in a trophy at a time when people predict you to finish sixth is good losing 6-3 against Man City losing 7-0 against Liverpool losing away against Arsenal is bad Um, but the mistakes Ten Hag made this season you can can see being quite easily remedied by getting better players Um, and the way he overperformed by some truly innovative solutions Uh, I have to applaud that right I We all figured out very, very early on Valtvekos was not going to score too many goals in the Premier League. But the fact that he still managed to make Valtvekos contribute in a useful manner shows why Ten Hag is one of the better managers in the Premier League.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think for the same reasons I give him an 8. I think his squad rotation is going to make me pull my hair for the rest <laughs> of his tenure, but as far as what I expected and what I got out of the season, I think it was a great season, and I think that's pretty much down to Ten Hag. So... I mean, yeah. When United are more functional and start to really destroy teams for multiple long periods of the season, you might see me give Tanhag a nine or a ten. But for now, it's an eight, which is like as I think as good as he could have, as good as I could have expected out of the season.
1: Yeah, I think I go seven um, again for basically all the same reasons <laughs> you guys just highlighted. Um, yeah, yeah, I. He did very well. I think seven is probably the highest I would give any United manager since Ferguson. So, um, yeah, it's a it's a yeah. strong start. It's a strong start. Uh, I think
2: even the better post-Ferguson seasons were, this is really good. I, I hope you can improve on this next season. And you go, oh.
1: And it doesn't
0: happen. This was the best yeah. one by far, though. So, I, I really do hope United can improve upon it. <laughs> Um, no,
2: tell a lie. That was mean Ole on Solskjaer did have a season where he proved upon the work he did the previous season. K- Case was going to give
0: Tanhagen nine, but now he can't remember that goal, so he gave him a 7 <laughs>
1: This is driving me nuts. I'm not going to lie to you. Maybe, maybe it's a maybe it's a Bruno goal, and you're right. I, we we work it basically right to left across the box, and then it's a quick cross and maybe Crystal it's Palace. Bruno that's completely against Crystal
0: Palace. Is it? in the it... in the win over crystal palace that's the game it's from I'm pretty sure
1: oh yeah that
2: is a good goal yeah that gets all overshadowed because casemiro gets sent off and everyone wants to yell about var but that is a very good goal against crystal palace
0: you'll need a var review for that so. yeah i probably will all right <laughs> <laughs> verdict Key case did not find goal
1: <laughs> oh i just got hit with an ad And it's gonna play the full 15 seconds. Busted!
0: Busted! Yellow card to YouTube. You lose. You (laughs) lose, my friend. (sighs) I might have to leave this in. This is great.
1: This is brutal. I'm I'm suffering (laughs) here. Oh come on.
0: Is it is it not even a skip ad?
1: No. Yeah. I had to watch the full 15 seconds. It's painful, man. Yes, this is it. Yep. Okay, yeah. It's against Crystal Palace. It's the 2-0 against Crystal Palace on February 4th. Team goal. We work it right to left. Uh, Shaw winds up hitting a first-time cross into Rashford. as a tap Yeah, it's a gorgeous goal. Okay, anyway, that took way more time than it should have. That is my right. goal of the season.
0: Well, I'm sure we're going to want to create more goals like that next season, but in order to do that, we're going to need some transfers. So, Case and I have talked extensively about our transfer list for the summer. Carl, I want you to rank your top transfer priorities for the summer and we'll go from there.
2: Striker, goalkeeper, central midfielder, right back.
1: That is exactly mine.
2: Center back after that. I I you don't have to get a new center back. If you do get a new center back, okay. Um but yeah, I think everything everything we will come to learn about Ten Hag for next season, starts with a striker. And there'll be def- there's definitely going to be a point in my summer where I'll go from writing 800-word pieces about Manchester United's future to writing 1,500-word pieces because I'm like, okay, now I know the striker. I know who the striker is. I know how everything's going to work in terms of the front three. Or I everything from the front three will make more sense and that will affect everything else. So that's happening. That will probably happen sometime this season. I don't expect a striker to arrive until after the US tour. And that's that's not me saying because it's this player, this player, but that's saying to get the sort of striker Ten Hag wants, he needs to spend seventy-five million plus. Those players don't move in July; they move. They don't move in June; they move late July as you go through third and fourth rounds of drafts and whatever, and whatever of contract negotiations. So yeah, striker number one. Second thing, get a goalkeeper. <laughs> I. You cannot have watched those Champions League semi-finals. The standard of goalkeeping in the Champions League semi-finals from AC Milan, Inter Milan, Real Madrid and Manchester City was so high. And you bear in mind, Manchester United have not got past the quarter-final stage since... They've not reached the quarter-final stage since eighteen nineteen. You need a better goalkeeper than David De Gea. He's been a fantastic club servant. And if he extends his contract on reduced wages, okay, fine. But you need a goalkeeper who can, when pressured, just get the ball to the fullback, which Onana was doing for fun in the Champions League, right? You need to, you need someone who can claim crosses to the level that Edison was doing. Um, and I think it was really telling that at the FA Cup final, Stefan Ortega, City's backup goalkeeper, was pinging long balls mm. with great accuracy than David De Gea. It's, it's, I don't want to say it's untenable because Lissandro Martinez helps a lot in terms of problems with build-up but if you look at that back five a back five of Luke Shaw Martinez Rafael Varane and Juan Bissaka, and David De Gea <clears throat> that's two out of five who are good at deep build-up a back five of Luke Shaw, the Sanjay Martinez, Rafa Varane, eh, Diogo Dalot, and goalkeeper closer to Onana, it's the transformation, right? It, it looks so totally different. Two extra players yeah. who are better at build-up and then all of a sudden you're not worrying about playing, you're not as worried about playing Brighton away from home. So you, you need to get a goalkeeper. You don't need to spend massive amounts to get an improvement on De Gea. I do think if you are if you skimp out on money here now, you will have to fix that later mm-hmm. on. But I'm okay with that, right? You, can, 40 to 50 million on a goalkeeper to make you better in two to three years, fine. Yeah,
1: I agree. I, I agree with essentially all of that, yeah.
2: And then central midfielder, you need... Central midfielder is difficult because you both need someone who is better than Kristian Eriksen in terms of uh, physical output and defensive output. And you also, you are going to need a backup for Casemiro. And I don't think you can get both of those players in the same window. So you should probably get the person to stand next to Casemiro this summer and then get the Casemiro backup next summer.
0: All right, I'm going to ask you to name names because oh, you know, I have I nothing else to names. suggest.
2: You know I hate naming names. Um, okay, Manchester United should be trying to sign Marcus Thuram on a three. Free transfer. He's over on he's free transfer and... I'm not saying he should be your stri- I'm not saying you should be your starting striker next season. He should be your only starting striker, but it looks like Anthony Martial can't run. Martial- so you need to make you need to make a number of moves and a number of things to make sure Martial is your third choice striker next season. And a very easy way to have a striker who can come in immediately and be better than Martial or play the minutes where you're like, oh god, why is Martial have to be broken? Is just signing Marcus Thuram, and this was why I was really big on saying. Don't extend Weghorst when people were saying, "Oh, we should extend Weghorst. He's cheap and he he loves being here. Cheap and loving being here is not the criteria to being a Manchester United player." Marcus Thuram should be your should be your like benchmark for a striker at Manchester United. Are you better than Marcus Thuram at doing striker things? And if the answer is yes, hello, we're some agents. Would you like to sign for Manchester United? Let's have a conversation. So Thuram on a free would love that goalkeeper. I am. I have cooled on David Raya in recent weeks because I've watched more footage in the last couple of weeks. I thought, you know, just get Raya. He, he's played the head of the hair for the national team and he'll be a goalkeeper for five years. And I'm like, if you did get Raya for 40 million, you would have to replace him in
0: three. 40 million is too much for, for Raya. And I'm a big fan.
2: Yeah. Okay. okay. So there you go. So I, let's describe the... I'll name players as benchmarks. So you have to be at least as good... For me to start being like, yeah, you should get this player. So Thuram, you need to get you. You should sign Thuram on a free. If you're not signing Thuram on a free, any strike you get needs to be better than Thuram. Goalkeeper, you should be getting a goalkeeper like David Raya. If you sign David Raya, eh, okay, fine, but you you do that with the understanding of you're probably going to need to buy another goalkeeper in three years. Central midfield, that's the tricky one. Um, I. I mean this Mason Mount thing is real and um, we've just had you know, as a recording it's become apparent Manchester United did make a bid for a fee that Chelsea have found not agreeable so United are pushing to get him Mason Mount okay doesn't like he's he's a good player I don't see him as a number eight but then I didn't see Christian Eriksen as a number eight when Eriksen was signed so Ten Hag's got something in there that I'm not seeing we can call Mason Mount the benchmark for a central midfield player, right? You should be getting a player as good as Mason Mount or better. And I also think you shouldn't be paying more than sixty million for Mason Mount as well. I know money's not I real. Agree. It's not my money. Yeah. Money's money's not real, it's not my money. But if Chelsea go, this player costs seventy million, you just go, Okay, cool, bye. Yeah. I'm gonna go to I Bundes- agree. I'm gonna go to the Bundesliga now. Um so those are my things. And then at right back, oh, I mean at right back I just wish Manchester United bought Malagusto mm. because he, he he's the exact player you should have bought. Um and, and I think I don't know how many Premier League games Gusto's gonna play next season because Reese James is exceptional. But if he if he even hints at being annoyed, United should be all in and try and get him because he, he should be he's your right back for the next ten years.
1: Yeah, that would be
2: great. <laughs> right back better than that would be a right sensational back sensational
0: window. Um, Your
2: right back needs to be better than Malagusto. Your goalkeeper needs to be better than David Raya. Your central midfield player needs to be better than Mark um, Mason Mount. Your striking needs to be better than Marcus Thuram.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the hardest of those is, to, is. I think it's nearly impossible to find a right back um, that's better than Malagusto. Yeah. But I think the other ones are doable with even with the options that we're seeing, um, if not better than Thuram, than younger. So,
2: from what we understand, it's a hundred million plus sales in this current scenario of ownership it's 100 million spending money and sales and player sales i mean those are fiction for, you know people saying i've heard people say you can sell harry maguire for 60 million i've heard people say you're not selling harry maguire for more than 30 million i've heard people say you can get 10 million for brandon williams i've heard people say you're not getting anything more than five for brandon williams is is it's, it's, you you're getting for the you're getting however much these football clubs want players that you have made it semi-clear that you're willing to move on right Alex Talese is a Europa League winner with Sevilla (laughs) never say that again (laughs) Alex Talese is a Europa League winner with with Sevilla if if there's a way you can make that a lucrative selling package because let's be real Alex Talese is not an Eric Ten Hag fullback he's probably not going to be a Manchester United player in October right? He's probably going. (laughs) How do you sell him in a way that you get more money than the 50 million you bought him for is entirely up to you.
0: Before we wrap up, Carl, um, we discussed early in the season about 10 hogs philosophy. Last time we had you on, we were talking about United compromising, um, United have compromised to some extent for sure. And now we've reached the end of the season. And as we go into the seasons beyond, um, I think Case and I both hold the view that long-term compromising still is just not a way for United to consistently be the best team in the competitions that they currently play in, or even close. Um, but to what extent do you think that this season has changed your mind that, you know, some level of compromise might not be so bad and might actually lead to finding solutions that could make United better as a team in the long term?
2: Ooh. Ooh, I was right up with you until you said in the long term.
0: I mean, I, I'm, I'm not asking a question you that, in the that long I hold t- the opinion.
2: That's, that's, that's a really good question. And yeah, your compromise apps, the compromises 10 has done over the course of 22 23 have been really, really interesting and have helped you achieve your short to medium term goals, right? Voutveckels is number 10. Huh? At the new camp. Really? You drew the game. You probably should have won that game. Great. Cool. David De Gea kicking long. Okay. Good. You're sort of swam through those choppy waters and got to where you needed to be. Marcel Sabitzer playing like Donny van der Beek from the number 10 going ahead of Anthony Martial was amazing in those 45 minutes against Sevilla and then it all just sort of dissolved. Um, And you know, Sabitzer coming in for an injured Christian Eriksen. We never got Sabitzer, Casemiro next to each other because Casemiro was always suspended. But the time that Ten Hag fully went, okay, here's Sabitzer and went, I'm just going to use you like Donny van der Beek. Really surprised me. And I think that's one great thing about Ten Hag you cannot keep cutting corners though you know because there was definitely a point in that latter half in that run of people going "Oh, are you not going to finish the top four in those defeats against Brighton where you're going Ten Hag cut so many corners we're getting a circle you know what yeah, yeah. why did Ten Hag play Bruno Fernandes on the left hand side at Anfield That that was just one corner too many to cut and I, I don't think that will happen next year because next year there will be a number nine, and Rashford can play as the num- on the left hand side where he wants to be. And I can see Rashford against Trent again because we know Rashford can beat Trent in that duo. So there will be compromise next season. I I don't think Ten Hag is going to get all of his A one, you know, all of his number one transfer targets. I, I don't think I don't think there's a perfect midfielder for that. Four two three one, 2 um, And I think, you know, even Bruno Fernandes, as good as he is, he causes some... Compromise. He causes it. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, I, think, I think the way Bruno Fernandes plays football causes compromise from people around him. And I think the way Marcus Rashford plays on the left-hand side causes compromise from people around him, right? Uh, wh- whichever striker you get as a number nine this summer, they are going to be told Marcus Rashford is not going to cross too much from the left-hand side. He can but Rashford wants to come inside and shoot with you so are you willing to to share that half space with him that that creates a level of compromise so let's take a player like um Victor Osimhen is being linked to Manchester United people want Victor he's yeah Osherman and Rashford up top that's going to someone in there has to compromise because they both want to access the same roles and Osimhen is incredible in the air but Rashford's not going to cross as much as Cavichetti um, so you've got compromise in, in that level and you've also got compromise in oh God, I've got to play Luke Shaw at left centre-back. Um, so Luke Shaw at left centre-back, I want to see less of Luke Shaw at left centre-back or the compromises of that sort of kind. I don't want to see the sort of compromises in um, can I make Marcus Rashford knit neatly with whoever plays at number nine.
0: So I, I think what I'm broadly hearing is compromise is okay
2: if and only if no, that's not okay, no I I say compromise is okay if you understand it's in there's a difference between compromise and so there's compromise where you consolidate ideas and there's compromise where you just got to get through something. Bruno Fernandes playing in a deeper position against Everton at home. That's just Bruno. I've got no one left to play against Casemiro Ericsson's knackered, Sabitza can't play. Can you just do this for 90 minutes? And I don't like that. And then you've got to compromise where you're consolidating ideas, which is just, okay, David De Gea, you cannot help him build that play. So I'm going to ask you to do this thing, and Lissandro Martinez is going to cover for you. And I've got Luke Shaw next to you, and I've got perhaps even another centre back next to you who can help do that. And that's me compromising, but I'm also talking David De Gea, at some point, all of these players in front of you who's good at build up, you're going to be the hindrance and we're going to have to move on from you one day.
0: So you want to compromise <laughs> in order to create strengths as opposed to yes. compromise in order to mitigate weaknesses that should weaknesses. not exist in yeah. the first place. Yeah. And the reason, the main reason go. why I asked that question is because, you know, again, we go back to the start of the season where everyone was saying that Ten Hag has to adapt. And we're at the end of the season, and I'm sure Case will feel the same way. I don't think any of us have changed our minds, right? Um, Regardless of how United have gotten through the season, the blueprint is still the same for how this team has to act to become an elite team. Um, And I think that's important because a lot of people, I think, will have it in their minds that that this season is about Ten Hag adapting to England. And while to some extent I think that's true, I also think that the bigger overarching... Um, variable of United success is United adapting to Ten Hag. Um, mm-hmm. I agree. We've been talking for
2: a while. This has been a really good podcast even though we went round in circles going,
0: I agree. I agree.
2: That's I typically agree. how it goes here.
0: Um, <laughs> that's what we do at Devils in the Details. We ask difficult questions and then agree on the answer universally.
2: That's nice. It's, it's, it's a well-natured turn of face. Not everyone's yelling about no one's going, no, you should be trying to buy this striker instead. <laughs>
0: um... um Thanks, Carl, for coming on. Uh, thanks, no, Case, once again. Um, it's been a great season as far as I'm concerned, and hopefully more of the same, uh, but not before a summer transfer window of rumors. So please follow Carl on Twitter. You already follow Carl on Twitter if you listen to this podcast. If you don't, please follow Carl on Twitter. And have a great week. We'll see you next time.
2: hmm
0: Hope you enjoyed this week's Devils in the Details. You can follow us at Devil's ITD Pod on Twitter or on a variety of streaming platforms. Our awesome theme music was made by Jacob Connor. You can find at Jacob J Connor on Twitter. Have a great week and we'll see you next time.